Well, Luke chapter 7 and uh, verses 1 to 10. Now, the Lord Jesus is said to have marveled at two things. Mark 6, 6, it says that he marveled because of their unbelief. There being a reference to the people of Nazareth. So Jesus was amazed at the unbelief of those people. And then we have a text here in our passage, verse 9, which says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So he marveled at the unbelief of the people in Nazareth, and he marveled at this man's faith. So I wonder what the Lord Jesus thinks of your faith and mine. What does he think of the state of your faith, the state of my faith? We want to be those who cause him to marvel. We want to have amazing faith not for our own glory, but for the honor of Christ, because we do well to trust him. The Lord Jesus here at the beginning of chapter 7 has just finished what is known as the Sermon on the Plain. You read about that in chapter 6, and now he returns to Capernaum. Capernaum was something of his base of operations during his ministry in these early days. And uh, so there he meets the human focal point of this passage. He meets a Roman centurion. Now, a Roman centurion had a servant. So a centurion is basically equivalent to a captain in modern-day armies. He's an army captain. How many men does he have under his charge? Well, uh, technically about 100 as he is a centurion. Uh, in reality, it was more flexible, and uh, so he might uh, have charge of a hundred or less than a hundred and sometimes more than a hundred, the fairly flexible term. He has a servant, and the servant was dying. When you read Matthew's account, it says that the servant was lying paralyzed, so he was in a great deal of distress. And what the centurion does is he sends Jewish elders to Jesus. He explains why later, but he sends Jewish elders to Jesus to ask for help. And the Lord Jesus hears their pleadings, and he agrees to come. But on the way, uh, the centurion sends another message. And so we read in verse 6, Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. This faith amazes Jesus. And uh, without going any further, and by a word, he heals the servant. Charles Spurgeon, many years later, would say, Oh, brethren, be great believers. When he says believers, he means great believers in God, men and women of great faith. 
Oh, brethren, be great believers. A little faith will bring your souls to heaven, and great faith will bring heaven to your souls. This man is a man of great faith, and we want to look very carefully at him this morning and consider the example of great faith that we find in him and pray that God will will use this study and use this man and his example to make of us men and women and young people of great faith. We're going to learn at least three things about this man, this uh, Roman centurion, this remarkable Gentile. We're going to see that he's a man of humility. We're going to see that he's a man of kindness. And then most significantly, we're going to see that he's a man of faith, of great faith. First of all, then, he's a man of humility. And we read in verse 3, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And he wants them, on his behalf, to plead that Jesus would come and heal his servant. Now, when you read Matthew's account, you find that Matthew says that the centurion came. And here we're told that he sent Jewish elders. There's really no contradiction at all because the Jewish elders went on his behalf. They went as his representatives, as his spokesmen. You find, for instance, in the Gospel of John that Pilate is said to have scourged Jesus. John 19. But we know that it was the soldiers who scourged Jesus, but they did this at his behest and on his behalf. So he is said to have done this Uh, through them. And in the same way here, the centurion is pleading through these elders, and they are his prophets, as it were, his spokesmen. And so he comes to Jesus, and he does plead. Verse 4 tells us that they pled with the Lord Jesus. This was no mild-mannered request. Uh, This was not a group of men who are disengaged with this with this request. No, they, they pleaded on behalf of the centurion who was himself pleading with Jesus. And he pleads because he feels unworthy. He pleads because he's concerned. We'll talk about that later. But he also pleads. He doesn't command. He doesn't demand. He doesn't issue an instruction. He's a centurion after all, but he doesn't do that. He pleads. And he pleads because he feels unworthy. I did not presume to come to you. It would be, he said, presumptuous of me to come and even to stand before you. He's not full of himself, this man. He feels himself to be unworthy to even stand before Jesus. He also says, I am unworthy to have you cross the threshold of my home. I don't know if you've ever felt that, that you're not worthy to have this august guest come into your home. And that's how he feels about Jesus. He feels unworthy. Unworthy to have him as a guest in his home and unworthy even to stand in front of Jesus. He knows something of what Peter felt. Remember when Peter said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He understands something of this. He understands something of what we read about in 
chapter 6 and verse 20, when the Lord Jesus spoke about those who are blessed, the ones who are poor in spirit, the ones who experience and know experientially something of spiritual bankruptcy. They know they have nothing to commend them to God with. They know they have no spiritual credit with God. They know they don't deserve to be in the presence of God. They know they're people under condemnation. They know that they have a holy God and a a just judge, and they couldn't hope to stand before God. So sinful are they. So they're spiritually poor. They recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. Well, this man knows something of that. I'm unworthy to be even in your presence, to stand in front of you. I'm unworthy for that. Certainly unworthy then to have you come into my home. It's a remarkable thing, you know, because the Jews thought he was worthy. These Jewish leaders, not just ordinary Jewish people, but these august Jewish leaders, Uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and so on and so forth. These leaders think that he is eminently worthy. Look at verses 4 and 5. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built our synagogue. So they think he's worthy. He deserves this blessing. Come and heal his servant because, you know, he deserves this. He's a good man might even say a great man, he's been so good to us, he built our synagogue. So, yeah, he deserves this. He deserves your healing power. I wonder if you think you deserve blessing. I have to confess to you, there have been times I have felt, I've, I've drifted over into a position where I feel I deserve blessing from God. Do you feel you deserve blessing? And so when you don't get a particular blessing, you're a little shocked because, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good Christian. I mean, compared to other Christians, you know, I do this and that and the other. So I'm, I have to tell you, I'm frankly surprised. I didn't have this happen to me. Sometimes we think we deserve blessing from God. See, this man knew better. The world doesn't evaluate things the way God evaluates things, and God doesn't evaluate things the way the world does. And the world says, oh, you're worthy. You deserve a break today and all the rest. You deserve that. And God says, no, you don't. You really don't. I'll tell you what you deserve. The Bible is very clear about what we really deserve. And no Christian starts to think properly when he starts to think, yeah, I think I deserve a few blessings here and there. No, this man has it right, you see. He, he understands things are right. I am unworthy. Not even talking about the blessings. I'm unworthy to stand in front of you. I'm unworthy to have you in my home, let alone come in my home and bless. No, he feels thoroughly unworthy. And you see, this is remarkable because in the world, he would have been a very significant person. A centurion was a significant person. Writers tell us that they were the backbone of the Roman army, that um, they were, listen to one historian, he says, um, 
they must be not so much seekers after danger as men who can command. Steady in action and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. They were man... A centurion was a man among men. He was head and shoulders above others. That's why they made him a centurion. He was a man of significance, a man of, a man of prominence. Interestingly enough, whenever you read... Uh, about references to centurions in the New Testament, they're always spoken of in a very positive way. And so the world would think of centurions in a very positive way, but he knows. He knows the biblical perspective does this centurion. He knows he's unworthy. The biblical perspective, as you and I well know, not just with regard to this centurion, but to all men, And to us as well. If we stand before God, it is by grace alone. If we can stand upright before God and look Him in the face, it is by grace through faith alone. Not because we deserve it, but because we've become objects of mercy. We deserve not the least of God's blessings. The the smallest blessing is undeserved unmerited, unearned, and an expression of pure grace. We deserve only judgment and condemnation. Grace and mercy. See, that's our hope. Remember 1 Peter 5, 5 says that uh, God gives grace to the humble. Now, humble yourselves. Because God resists the proud. The word resists there means to set yourself in battle array. It's an army kind of word. And God, if you're proud, God establishes himself and sets all of his hosts in order and comes at you as an army would come against you. He sets himself in battle array against the proud. So don't be proud. The humble, however, the humble who recognize their unworthiness, well, he gives grace to them. They need grace, and he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who recognize that they're spiritually bankrupt without Christ. There was an Anglican minister in the late 1700s, early 1800s named Charles Simeon. His first 20 or so years in the church, he was terribly persecuted, not by the unbelievers in the world in London, but by the people in the church, many of whom, frankly, were probably unbelievers. They would, among other things, they locked him out of the church, not because the church building didn't belong to them, but because, well, they just wanted to persecute him and make him him suffer. One of the keys that helped him to press on and to remain faithful, ultimately and eventually winning them over, was humility. This is the kind of man he was. He used to carry around in his inside pocket of his jacket a piece of paper that said, talk not about myself. That was his reminder to himself. Don't be full of yourself. Don't be self-absorbed and self-focused. Talk not about myself. Years later, he would write, 
the three lessons a minister must, must learn, and of course it's true of all of us, the three things, the three lessons a minister must learn. Lesson number one, humility. Lesson number two, humility. And you know what lesson number three is. Now, this man understood that. He would, have, he would have added an amen to that. Now, I don't think any of us would disagree with it. We should be humble as this man was humble. The difficulty for us is that it's easy to recognize this. It's easy to uh, own up to the fact that we have every reason to be humble. We ought not to be proud. But then it's difficult to be to be truly humble, because it's so easy to be proud even while we try to be humble. And even while we testify to our littleness and our unworthiness, it's easy to be proud. You know, you testify to the fact that you're just little. You know, God is great and grand. And you testify to your unworthiness because God is holy and perfect and righteous and we are not manifestly not. But sometimes, pride lives like right next to that measure, that modicum of humility. Like with Churchill, Churchill said, we are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glowworm. So there's a, you know, as sinners go, I'm a pretty good one. That's how perverse we are. J.C. Ryle, however, says humility is one of the strongest evidences of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. To have great gifts and to do great works for God is not given to all believers, but all believers ought to strive to be clothed with humility. All of us, you and I, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, the Scripture says. Let us do that. So that's the first thing we see about this man. He's a man of humility. What a tremendous example to follow. Secondly, he was a man of kindness. He was a man of kindness. He was kind to his servant. He was kind to his servant. You'll see in verse 2 that he, he valued this servant. He, um, the servant was sick and at the point of death, but the servant was one who was highly valued by him. Uh, the New King James translates that in this way. Uh, this servant was very dear to him. Uh, one of the ways in which he expressed his care was that in all probability what he did is he took the servant, this sick servant, he took the servant into his home. Matthew 8, 6 says that he was, the servant was lying paralyzed at home, probably not his own home, but probably within the home of the centurion himself. Uh, Jesus, verse 6 says, went with him, and when he was not far from the house, so it, presumably he was going to the centurion's house there to meet and to heal the, the servant. And it's at that point that uh, he is stopped. But the point is that the centurion cares enough about this servant to take him into his home and let him hopefully recuperate, at the very least uh, have that home where he might suffer and die in a measure of comfort. 
What's more, in verse 7, look at this. In verse 7 it says, Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. Now these are the words of the centurion to Jesus, and he's saying, uh, say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, it's translated servant in verse 2. We find the word servant again. But verse 2 is a different word. And the, word in ver- the Greek word in verse 7, different word than the Greek word in verse 2. They're both translated servant for some reason. My servant, he says in verse 2, and my servant. But in verse 7, it's more something like this. It's my boy. My boy. That's a term of endearment. It's not the kind of thing uh, that, uh, uh, that was derisive and um, something of an insult. Think of the word boy in the 1800s and probably into the mid-1900s as well in the American South. Boy has a very negative connotation in certain situations, as probably you well know. But this is a term here of endearment. In South Africa, when I was just a, just a child, my, my dad would just he'd call me boy. Right? That's a term of endearment. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. So here's a Roman centurion, a man of, of power and dignity and prominence and of significant wealth because he built the synagogue. And this servant, he calls him my boy. There's real affection here. There's real care. And it's remarkable because in those days, these were servants. Now, in verse 2, it's a different word. It's the word doulos, and it really means slave. And in those days, you could do what you want with a slave. In those days, slaves were considered to be living tools. I I don't have tools, so I don't know about the world of tools. But I gather that if you have tools, tools can get out of date or rusty or whatever. And so, in fact, there's a a document from these days, early first century, where somebody's giving advice to to Roman men. You should go through all your tools at the end of the year and see which ones you really need to get rid of because they're no longer effective. Get rid of them. Do the same with your slaves. Get rid of the ones that are no longer effective. So the advice would have been from the world, well, you know, here's a servant. He's no longer effective for you. He's causing you a lot of headache. You know, get rid of him. No, no. As my boy, I'm going to humble myself before that that Jesus, and I'm going to cry out to him to heal this, not just a slave, but my son, my, my boy. He's kind then, was this centurion. He was a kind man. He was kind to his servant. And he was also kind to his neighbors. He was kind to the Jews. And you read in verses 3 to 5 that he built them a synagogue. And the way it's phrased, it's that, that he did this. He was the one who built the synagogue. And so presumably he did it out of his own resources. He must have been a man of, of uh, some wealth. And so out of his own resources... He did this. He loves our nation, they say. He loves us. What a remarkable thing to say about a man of war, a man of violence, a man who was a combatant in that great, uh, that renowned Roman army. 
But he loves us, and so much so, put his money where his mouth is, and he built us a synagogue. This is also unusual because whilst the Jews despised the Gentiles, the Gentiles also despised the Jews and didn't think very well of them. And so we're told that, uh, that Gentile writers described, and Gentile people and Romans in particular, described the Jews as, quote-unquote, a filthy race. So whatever animosity the Jews felt towards Gentiles at large, calling them dogs, this was returned. They were a, their religion was what Romans called a barbarous superstition. Now, they're no one to talk, to be honest with you, because all kinds of filth and barbarous superstitions thrived in the Roman Empire. But be that as it may, they look on the, the Jewish people and they say, well, theirs is a barbarous superstition. They are people who hate mankind. And uh, that's a terrible thing as well. So it's extraordinary then to read of this man's care for, his love for, and his kindness towards those whom everybody else was looking down upon. So he was very kind to them. And he was very gracious to them. And he was very good to them. Kindness, you know, is a wonderful thing. I don't know if you've read Macbeth. And if you've read Macbeth, you know, I'm sure you know this line that um, Macbeth wants to be a king. And and his wife doesn't think doesn't think he has the wherewithal to be a king because she says, yet I do fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. See, you're just not ruthless enough. You're not cruel enough. There's, there's too much in you of the milk of human kindness. Now, she obviously doesn't think a great deal about the milk of human kindness, but it's a wonderful thing. The milk of human kindness. Well, that's what we see in this man the milk of human kindness. More accurately, it's the, the milk of what really is Christ-like kindness. It's a wonderful thing when Christians are characterized by kindness. Sometimes you see people do things and, and say things that reduce you to tears of joy and uh, move you to to thankfulness to God for what they've done and, and how kind they have been and how wonderfully they've expressed that kindness to you. Have, have we not, you and I, in this church, this congregation, have we not been the recipients of the kindness of others? Have we not? in recent days, been the recipients of remarkable kindness from these people here. They're looking after us. Don't have to, really. But looking after us for the next few years, doing their best to do that, giving us just a lot of money. That's just, that's just remarkable kindness, you see. And, uh, well, we should be thankful. 
And, uh, and we should want to be, we should want to more and more be men and women, young people and children who, who are characterized by kindness, who are Christ-like in that way. And you want to pray that God will make you kind. We need God to, to make us kind. We need his help to be kind. Because if you're like me, I, I see people do things. I see people in this congregation, frankly, do things that I think are so kind. And, and when I see it, I think, I, 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 would never have, I would never have thought of that. I could, things don't even occur to me. I mean, now, once it occurs to you, then there's the added step of, you know, am I selfless enough to actually do it? Am I willing to get off my seat and actually, you know, so there's that element as well. But in my case, like a lot of times, it just doesn't even pop into my head. And so how thankful we can be that Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says that the fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, kindness. And the fruit of the Spirit involves this, this aspect of kindness. So we can pray and ask the Lord to help us to be increasingly kind to one another and to frankly, whoever crosses our path. He's a man of humility, and then he's a man of kindness. And then lastly, he's a man of faith. This is the really big lesson. This is really the main emphasis in this passage. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. That's the the grand message of Luke. And always, it's with a view to us believing in him and trusting him. That's the point of this passage as well. So we need to be men and women of faith. Now, the Romans at large were happy to encourage religion, religion of any sort, because what they felt was that religion was useful as, what was it, Marx called it, the opiate of the masses. Religion will keep them kind of dull and uh, keep them from being problematic. It'll keep them from being rebellious. It'll calm them down so that they don't start a riot. So let them just do their thing and enjoy their religion. And in fact, um, there's a man by the name of uh, Gibbon who wrote an extraordinary book on the Roman Empire. And he says this, the various modes of religion which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered to be uh, considered by the people as equally true So the people, all the people thought all these religions were equally true. They were considered by the philosophers as equally false. And they were considered by the magistrate, by the rulers, as equally useful. So a Roman centurion generally would think, you know, let them just do their thing. It'll keep them out of trouble. It'll save me trouble. This man's different. Here is genuine faith. Here is a a genuine commitment to religion. There's something religious about this man, and it is genuine religion, not not phony. He's not playing a game here. Genuine faith. So two things about him. One, he was saved by faith. This this man was saved. There are evangelical writers who say, well, he was not saved. Well, I have to disagree. Jesus only commends true and saving faith, because the Lord Jesus knows the difference between, between true faith and phony faith faith. He knows men's hearts, and he commends this faith, and it's clearly saving faith. Thomas Brooks, commend Thomas Brooks to you, one of the great Puritans. He says, till men have faith in Christ, their best services are 
but glorious sins. Till men have faith in Christ, their best services are but glorious sins. That's a a sentence worthy of deep thought. It can help you even when you're thinking about the problem of evil and suffering in the world and and the pro- just in, in all kinds of different areas. But it's very important to recognize it's true. Till men have faith in Christ, the best things they do are but glorious sins. Jesus would not have praised this man's glorious sins. This is genuine faith. This is true faith. He is genuinely saved. And that's enormously significant because he's a Gentile. I haven't seen faith like this even in Israel even amongst the Jews, even amongst the chosen people. I haven't seen faith such as being manifested by this Gentile, even amongst the Jewish people. And that is of enormous significance, because the great emphasis, well, first of all, of the Old Testament, is that God is going to bless all nations of the world through the seed of Abraham. God never intended just to bless the Jews. It was always to bless all nations through the Jews, and in particular, through one Jew, and we know him to be Jesus. The New Testament makes that clear. There's an ongoing emphasis in Luke that Gentiles are in view here. The genealogy goes back to Adam, not just to Abraham. Suggesting that God's purposes encompass the world of nations and peoples, not just one nation in particular. You see the the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, The Samaritans are spoken of as those who uh, can have genuine faith. The story of the Good Samaritan. Well, here is someone, not a Jew, but there's faith. And there's genuine salvation to be had for those who are Uh, outside of the nation. And so it's significant then that here it's a Gentile being saved. And all of this is anticipating what happens in the book of Acts. Because when you come to the book of Acts, you come to Acts chapter 10. And if you're reading through McShane's uh, read through the Bible in a year, you will have been in Acts chapter 10 today. And you read about another centurion. You read about, um, what's his name? Cornelius. Yes. You read about him. And he suggests, and here you have the beginning, the, 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 the crack in the dike, as it were, and then the flood of Gentiles comes as the book of Acts continues. So this is of enormous significance. Here's a man who was saved. He's the first fruits of the Gentiles who are going to be saved. And for us... That's tremendous because you and I, we follow in his tracks. In a sense, you're here in seed form. Can't find you here, can't see your face or read your name, but you're there because here's the first of the Gentiles coming to saving faith in Christ. And later, you and I. It's tremendous. So he, he was saved by grace through faith. Secondly, he walked by faith. He walked by faith. How do you cope with a crisis? This man has a crisis. There's a serious crisis. So many things fade away when your children get sick. Nothing else matters. 
if they're seriously sick. You don't care about anything else after that. So here's a, that's a crisis. So here's, here's, oh, it's my boy. And he's dying. How do you cope with a crisis? Well, you turn to Christ. You look to the Lord Jesus. Or you cry out to him, Lord Jesus, help me. That's what you do. You turn to him in faith. Perhaps he had had seen, perhaps he had witnessed what we, you can read about this later in John 4, verses 46 to 53, the Lord Jesus healing someone's child. Perhaps he'd witnessed that. He'd seen the miracles that were done in Capernaum. And he believes that uh, that Jesus has the same kind of power to heal his, his servant. And he says, you know, he says to the Lord Jesus, you know, I have power over men. And I can, I can say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to that one, come, and he comes. And I can say, well, you know, jump this high, and he'll jump that high. I can do that because I have power over them. I have influence, and I have authority. And he says, you have power over disease. I mean, think about what an extraordinary kind of faith that is. What a remarkable understanding of Jesus' power this man has. He says, you can order disease to stop. We can't do that. We, we're, we're just so powerless. We, we throw all of our money at something. We throw all of our medical expertise at something. And then the person dies. I mean, how helpless are we in the face of cancer? People don't even want to say the word cancer. It's the C word. Why is that? Well, we wouldn't be afraid. We wouldn't say things like that if we had power. If we could just pour enough money into it, get the best doctors, and, and, you know, we'll defeat this thing. And sometimes people say, well, you know, we're going to fight this and we're going to beat this. That's like whistling while you, you walk past the cemetery. You know, we're really powerless. And thank God for, for modern medicine. Thank God for it. I wouldn't want to have lived in previous centuries. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're really helpless. And proof positive is the fact that every one of us dies. They can't stop it. Every one of you, somebody's going to bury you at some point. But this man says, Jesus, you can say stop, and it'll stop. Does he have cancer? You can stop that. Does he have a brain tumor? You can stop that. Extraordinary faith. And he says, you can do it with a word. It wasn't a matter of coming and you know, giving him a battery of, of medicines and performing, did they have surgery? Seems like the Egyptians did. But you, know, you, you can just say a word. Right? You don't even have to be there. You can be here and just say something and he'll be healed. And what does that tell us? Well, that tells us he thinks... Jesus is like Yahweh. Because what do we read from the Old Testament? Well, his word goes forward and he heals. That's what we read in the Psalms. 
And so God can speak and a universe comes into being. You, Lord Jesus, say but the word. Servant will be healed. What an exalted view of Jesus this man has. He believed. And God can just make things happen. I mentioned to you last week, I think, uh, was it Wednesday at prayer meeting? About a, a, about a tree. We were talking about trees. And there's a, there's a woman, a poet named Joyce Kilmer, who said this. She said, I think, this is her poem, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And then she goes on to talk about just how wonderful trees are, which I grant I, I'm not so much into that, but she was really thrilled about it. And then she concludes, poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. Well, right, so God made the universe. How did God make the universe? By speaking, just saying a word. And he says, say a word. You can stop this disease, this disease that's, that's about to kill my servant. Extraordinary faith. This faith is rare. And this faith amazed him. You and I want to believe the Lord Jesus so deeply, so thoroughly, so unquestioningly, with such childlike faith that he's amazed. When confronted with crisis, we turn to him with faith, just entrusting ourselves and our loved ones to him with faith, convinced that he's able to do great things and thus we're able to do great things because of him and we're able to endure, we're able to accomplish, we're able to face this, we're able to press on, we're able to do these things because he is able. I can do all things, whatever he calls me to face and do and I can do that because he's able and and I, you know, I trust him. I have faith in him. Thomas Brooks says, were men more rich in faith, they would be more rich in other blessings. Were we more faith, were we more rich in faith, we would be more rich in other blessings. So let our prayer be what the prayer of the disciples was. Lord, increase our faith. Men of humility, men of kindness, men and women of faith. Very quickly in closing, some implications. Number one is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, whether you're young or old, whether you're here or whether you're watching, if you're not a Christian, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, it's not enough for you to be amazed at his miracles. Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. That's what you want. It's not enough for you to be amazed at the miracles. Maybe you, maybe you listen to this and you say, oh, that, that's pretty amazing. I mean, you're right to heal with a word. I'd pay money. I'd pay good money to see that. That would have been amazing to be there. But... On the judgment day, it doesn't matter whether you were amazed at Jesus or not. The question is, were you a Christian? Because you see, the fact is that there were many people in Capernaum. This happened in Capernaum. This is where Jesus did the miracle and many others to boot. 
There were many in Capernaum who saw all of this and they heard the teaching and they stood near the Lord Jesus and they went straight to hell when they died. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 23 and 24, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For the might, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable. It's going to be worse on the judgment day for you than for Sodom. Because you had greater privileges, but you didn't believe in the Lord Jesus. Yet you didn't become a Christian. And you've had great privileges. You're raised in a Christian home. Your mom and dad pray for you all the time. You know the gospel and you could explain it to me. But you haven't believed. Great privileges. You need to make sure you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and become a Christian yourself. You hate to think about what will happen if you don't. But the Lord Jesus, you see, is, well, he's kind, isn't he? And so even though you haven't become a Christian yet, he's happy to have you become a Christian today. He won't say, you know, if you, if you ask him to save you today, he's not going to say, well, you know, yeah, you had your chance. Well, yeah, you did, but, uh, you know, he, he's giving you another opportunity today. That's how kind he is. He's saying to you today, through me, Especially through this passage, he's saying to you, believe, and you'll be saved. So, believe in the Lord Jesus. Secondly, another lesson is that there's hope for everyone. There's hope for everyone. This Roman centurion is a saved man, and he's walking by faith in Jesus. Who is he? Well, you know, he's a man of war. He's a man who, in all likelihood, almost certain, has blood on his hands. He's killed people. But he's saved. God's forgiven him of all his sins. He's a Christian. And if you become a Christian, you'll meet him in heaven. And so never give up on people. Never say, well, oh, they're, boy, they're, they're just really far gone. I mean, I could tell you, make your skin crawl if I tell you all about their life. Well, God can save people like that. God saved you and me. So... There's always hope. Thirdly, let's be kind. I reiterate this, let's be kind. And and how amazing, this man's kindness to his servant, it leads to, among other things, both of them experiencing, witnessing a miracle. I mean, how many times would that servant explain that story, tell that story to his family and his children and his grandchildren? Maybe he had great-grandchildren those servants, probably slaves, probably didn't live that long in, in the first century. But he would explain to everybody who would listen, you know, there was a day when I was, like I was right on the edge. And then, extraordinary. And so what blessing for both the centurion and the servant. Because, you know, it starts with his kindness to this, this sick young man. So let's be kind. Fourthly, let's admire what Jesus admires. Admire what Jesus admires. I mean, what impresses you? What do you admire in others? Oh, accomplished great things. Built up this company, started with nothing, just a few dollars, and built up this magnificent 
fabulous. Look at these people. Look at that house. Oh, what a tremendous house. What a boatload of money. Do you know what he's worth? We're talking Bill Gates kind of money. Oh. So what, like what impresses you? What impresses Jesus is faith. There's a man of great faith. There's a man. He's said to marvel two times. He marvels at unbelief. He marvels at faith. Let's be impressed by what impressed Jesus. And then also, let's, let's praise God for that kind of faith. Faith, we know from Ephesians 2, is a gift from God. Great faith, we know from Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it's a gift from God. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's what God works in us. So let's thank God for faith and pray God for more faith. And lastly, let's adore the Lord Jesus. Let's adore the Lord Jesus. What you see here is the Lord Jesus, he's amazed. It's his humanity. He heals. It's his divinity. Listen to uh, Bishop Ryle. He says, what can be more wonderful than to see Christ marvel? The expression is one of those which shows the reality of our Lord's human nature. He was made like us in all things, sin only accepted. A man, as a man, he grew in wisdom and stature. As a man, he hungered, thirsted, was weary, ate, drank, slept, wept, sorrowed, rejoiced, groaned, agonized, bled, suffered, and died. And so also as a man, he marveled. Yet all this time he was very and eternal God, one with the Father and the Savior of the world. This is a great mystery and one which we cannot fathom. The union of two natures in one person is a thing passing our weak comprehension. And we must believe and admire without attempting to define or explain. He marvels humanity. He heals divinity. And now we're amazed. We're amazed. And we marvel at the Son of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank you for your Son. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. We pray that we might love him ever more dearly, follow him more faithfully, walk humbly with him, manifest his kindness, and walk always by faith in him. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll close our service with uh, the singing of hymn number 380, My Jesus, I Love Thee, 380.